Hello and welcome to Compulsive Reader Talks. I'm Magdalena Ball and today's guest who's sitting with me right here in the park, Ali Whitelock, is a Scottish writer living in Australia. Her first book, Poking Seaweed with a Stick and Running Away from the Smell, was launched at Sydney Writers Festival and published to critical acclaim in Australia and the UK. Her latest collection, And My Heart Crumples Like a Coke Can, was published by Wakefield Press. Hi. And welcome. Thank you so much for having me. <laughs> this is lovely. I know. Oh. The great outdoors. So, yes, right. We'll, have to, get, we'll have to get a photo as well because this yeah, is audio idea. and I normally do this um, remotely. So it's really fun oh, to good. be sitting next to each other right. with the laptop on the lap. Um, before we begin chatting, can I please ask you to just open the show by reading um, maybe the first poem in the collection, A, a Friend of Mine with Low Self-Esteem? Oh, yeah, sure. I haven't read this one. We've got comfort Anywhere, straight after, yeah. too, so you can get some practice. With okay, that. great. Okay. A Friend of Mine with Low Self-Esteem. It is a very high-brow bookstore. I like the books in there. They also have penguin tote bags and scrabble mugs and badges you can buy which say, I read books. And you can pin these badges to your lapel so when you are not reading, people will know that you do. They have a sign at the front door that says you must leave your bag at the counter. And this is because they are worried you might steal a book from them. The poetry books are upstairs, the red carpet that leads you there is not very worn, the staff in the bookstore do not say hello to you or be nice to you because they are very intellectual, only they cannot find a job doing an intellectual thing and so they must scan barcodes and put aside the books that have been ordered in. Then they must ring up the customers to tell them their books are ready for collection. The other thing they must do is instruct people to swipe or tap or insert and sometimes there is cash and they must count it at the end of the night. Because they have degrees and PhDs they cannot do anything with, they are also quite rude because their self-esteem is quite low. A friend of mine has low self-esteem too. She read a book about it and told me there is an app you can download if you have an iPhone 6. I went to the highbrow bookstore to buy the book. When you're looking for a book in the highbrow bookstore, you can ask the scary lady at the computer to check if they have it in stock. I always look at the shelves first because I do not want to disturb the scary lady at the computer who always like, looks like she's doing very important work. Sometimes the work she is doing is so important she cannot look up from the keys to let you know she can see you standing there waiting. The book I wanted was not on the shelf. So I went to the scary lady at the computer and waited. The scary lady had lots of things to attend to before she could look up and see me standing at the counter. And when she did, I asked her if she could check to see if they had a copy of the book. The scary lady at the computer exhaled and said, could I just wait because now she had to change screens. Then she did a lot of key tapping and more of the exhaling thing. Then she said, sorry, they didn't have it and went back to her very important things again. And even though she said she was sorry, she didn't really sound sorry. Because when you're an intellectual, sometimes you do not have time to sound sorry. Before I left, I asked her if she could suggest another book that might be similar. Oh, I don't read books like that, she said, too loudly in my opinion. Thanks. <laughs> and I, I think that poem really sets the tone for the whole of the book it in some ways. It does, doesn't yeah. it? Yeah. Is, is it true? <laughs> 
I, and yeah, it's true. And it's interesting. I've had lots of people email me about this poem to say, is that that book in Melbourne? Is that that one in Brisbane? It's so funny. Yeah. But I haven't disclosed, nor will I, which bookstore that is. Or who the person. <laughs> yes. That's right. The scary lady. That's right. Um, but, you, you know, I guess one of the things that comes through um, a lot of the poems is that, you know, you don't poetically take prisoners. Yeah. <laughs> you, call, you call out BS a lot in this yeah. book. Yeah, I wasn't aware. Like, it wasn't something I set out to do. It just seems to be that's what comes out. So I just I go with what comes out, and I don't tend to filter that. Or I don't really. I'm not concerned about what. I'm, I just don't seem to be concerned about how people might feel about. Oh, that's not right. I'm not concerned that I'll be judged for what I'm saying. Oh, you don't censor yourself anymore. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't censor myself. That's right. I just it is what it is. Yeah. And do you find, I mean, I, I always think about this as a, it's an interesting thing because um, I've always felt that in a way you're kind of safe in poetry, maybe just because people don't read it. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I can, you can kind of say, yes. you say things and get away with them. And, you know, first comes to worse, and I probably shouldn't say this because I've used this line, you know, you can always go, it's not, you know, it's, it's a poem. It's not true as such. Yeah, as such. It's true. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. I have written a few things um, lately and I thought, I can publish this. Nobody's going to read it. <laughs> That's right. That's right. <laughs> Which is a sad indictment on poetry world, I suppose. Well, maybe, but maybe it's one of the joys of it is that you know you're you're doing something with the experience. Yeah. It's not necessarily a direct. It's not like a photograph. It's, you know, it's that's you're right. playing with the, yeah. the truth as opposed to yeah. the facts. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Exactly. So, how did the book come together? Did you write the individual poems wow. and then go, "Oh, yeah, enough"? Or were how you actually come schematically together? thinking? No, I wasn't. I wasn't thinking schematically. I was just thinking. Um, I was just writing, and I was writing whatever was the saddest, the happiest, the funniest, and going with that. And just, I just kept writing and writing until eventually, yeah, I had enough poems, and I thought this could maybe this is enough for a collection. So, I. I started stitching them together in a certain order and um, asked a few questions of a couple of people and that was how it came together. But I gave up right I gave up working in order to write full time, yeah. which is a, a very silly thing to do probably, but it was brought on by the fact that um, I'd gone back to Scotland. I I've been a writer, so I'd written a memoir nine years ago and that, that was published here in the UK. And um, I wanted to write more than I wanted to do anything, but I was like everyone else. I was doing these, you know, jobs that we didn't particularly love to do, etc., etc. Anyway, I went back to Scotland four years ago, and um, I went. I dropped in to see my father, and um, he was gravely ill, and nobody had known this. And in my time there, which was meant to be a holiday, my father died unexpectedly, and I was with him when he died, which is one of the most important things I've ever done in my entire life. Mm. I was catapulted into adulthood in that moment. And and, and because I'd had this ringside seat at death, I, I, I just, it changed me, as so many of us say after of those course. experiences, right? But I, I just felt, I can't, I don't want to waste a moment of, I just don't want to waste a moment. So mm. we, I came back to Sydney. And we sold up our little house in Sydney and we moved out of Sydney in order to sort of reduce our expenses. And, and your partner was like, that's fine. He was fine. Yeah, he's to totally amazingly supportive. He's kind of the hero and of so, the book. To be yeah, honest. that's right. Yeah, exactly. And so then from the first day that I wasn't working, I was at my desk because, and that was out of fear because I wasn't bringing in any money now. Something had to show up. So I had to do something. And so I did that. That became my job. I went to my desk every day. The routine just 
just became ingrained and then eventually I had enough material because I just wrote every single day. So did Poking Seaweed with a Stick come out before your father died or was Yeah, yeah, that yeah. was nine years so ago. So you had actually written that? Yeah, I had written that. That took three years to write and then that was published and, um, you know, and that did fairly well and... And I'm still writing little bits and pieces and a second memoir and this and that, but nothing was really gelling, nothing was really floating my boat. And then I stumbled on poetry, weirdly, yes. and then I just started writing short things and it was a, a revelation to me. Well, it's almost like a progression from the memoir form for you. I mean, a lot of the poems come across as memoir. Not yeah, memoir, but yeah, memoir. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. I found I couldn't write fiction once my mother died. I just found that the form that was right? no longer, it, it just no longer was working for me, that I needed to process things in a right. poetic way. Yeah. So maybe it's a bit like that. Death really changes yeah. the way you see things. And I think also death and poetry, they, I think they're two things that make you slow right down and you look at the, the kernel of the, the experience as opposed to the experience as a whole, mm -hmm. I just felt that with poetry, I could just really break things down and get to the, the as close to the emotion of the experience that I possibly could. And prose had become too wordy, yeah. too many words. I don't even want to read prose now. It's no time. There's no time to read prose. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> so when you read, um, when you read out loud, mm. and I'm not sure it's it's always hard when you yourself are reading. You may not notice what's happening in the audience. Yeah. When, I, I notice when you read out loud, like the audience gets very engaged. Okay. There are gasps. Right. There are nods. Yes. Yes. That's good. Yes, it's good. It's, <laughs> it's wonderful, really. And, and um, I guess that's because of the name. Like, there's something so immediately accessible mm -hmm. about your work. Yeah, that was important to me that the work be accessible. I wouldn't know how to write anything that was inaccessible mm -hmm. anyway, I don't think. But to me, that was what poetry was mm -hmm. up until five years ago. Poetry was a thing that wasn't written for me. It didn't speak to me. Mm -hmm. It was inaccessible. And clearly, my exposure to poetry was very limited. Mm -hmm. But that was the kind of idea that I'd taken from school, as many people do. And um, it just seemed to, I just wanted to kind of, well, what I was writing was just coming in very plain, plain language and mm -hmm. plain talking. And, and that was just really, that's really important to me. Yeah. Yeah, so can I ask you to read one? Um, <laughs> read one that um, is kind of like a complete story, I find. It really um, engages the audience like a complete story. And one that I really heard a lot of gasps when I heard yeah. you read this one. And that is, of course, eventually you will turn 50. Okay. Okay. And if I ask you to read anything and you think, nah, I just don't want to. Oh, no, no, I'm happy to read me. everything. Yeah. This one's quite long. Are you okay with that? Yeah, that's fine. Okay. Do we need any background? No. No, I don't think so. I think it's okay. pretty self-contained. Mm -hmm. Eventually you will turn 50. And this will be the day you lose your mind. You will produce honey and certain insects will be attracted to you. You will put on a dab of Hollywood red lipstick. This will be the same colour you discovered when you were 10 in the cardboard mushroom carton that doubled as your mother's makeup box. And when you emerged from the bathroom wearing the lipstick, your father told you you looked like a fucking whore. And it will surprise you that actually he was wrong. You will put on a black frock, which never used to, but now clings to the roles you seem to have developed overnight. These roles will make you appear more womanly, and you will not mind this one bit. You will start to take more time over your hair, buy a pair of earrings in the jewellery shop that is closing down. They will match your lipstick, and you will look beautiful, because your hair will fall over one eye, and this will make you look sultry. 
You will even consider putting on the MAC eyeshadow you bought seven years ago and never opened. It may still be good. A man you do not know will tell you your earrings make the green of your eyes look very nice and you will laugh and look away as though you are shy, though you will hope the lens of his camera is still upon you. You will have spent 20 years with the same partner. This partner will love you more and better than anyone ever could, including your own mother, who loves you very much. Eventually, your earrings and lipstick will cause your partner substantial discomfort, though he will not say anything about it, because he will know that turning 50 sometimes means that things might change, and he, he will know that all he can do is wait to see if anything is still standing once the high-pressure system has moved through. And although he is not a Buddhist, he will accept the river of life will sometimes burst its banks, that water will rise in kitchens and the insurers will need to be called in to assess the damage to the European appliances. And you will know something inside you is dying now, that the tub of fresh double cream that has sat happily at three degrees in the refrigerator of your life is now on the turn. You will meet a man you did not expect to meet. You will want to spend many nights with him. You will make up many excuses as to why you are coming home late. You will ask your girlfriend, who is also very good at lying, to join you in your drich den of dishonesty, and she will agree to act as your alibi should your partner of 20 years decide to call her one night to confirm you are with her. On the evenings you are not home, your partner of 20 years will eat dinner on his own, and he will cling wrap yours so when you come home, he can microwave it for you so you can have a hot meal. He will know that things are now very different, and he will know exactly what is different, but he will not say anything about it because he will not want to make you feel you cannot behave in the way you find you suddenly need to behave. He will notice you are now shaving your legs, having your bikini line waxed and sometimes your nails painted fire engine red. And he will not believe the outrageous lies you are telling him, but he will not call you on them. And this will make you think you are getting away with them. And even though he is not a Buddhist, he will not show you any rage. Rather, he will love you all the more because he will understand that what you need right now is love. And one morning when you will have stuffed your liver so full of your own lies that it sits swollen like that of a French goose, he will ask you gently if you want to talk about what's going on. And still you will tell him everything is fine and keep on with your lies till you are now choking on them. Eventually you will be home for dinner less and less and you will lie to him more and more and one night you will send him a text saying you will, you will be back later than usual, maybe even the next day and your lie for this one will be very original and completely unbelievable but you are now so addicted to your lies like a kid on nothing but Smarties and Mars bars and Tobler fucking Rons that you just keep right on shoveling your refined sugar onto the fire of your truth and your partner of 20 years will text you back simply saying okay because he knows you need to go through what you need to go through and he will eat dinner alone that night along with all the other nights and he will wash the dishes and watch the evening news and he will miss that you're not there shouting at the telly when the liberals come on 
and he will put the hot water bottle on your side of the bed and cling wrap your dinner because he understands the importance of a warm bed and a hot meal when you finally come home. If I wasn't on air right now, I'd be going, yes. Because <laughs> ah, it, it does invite that kind of engagement. But do, yeah. you, do you ever feel, and this, I guess this goes back to my earlier question, that you're giving too much of yourself to the reader or putting too much out? Or, or, or do you feel bolstered by the connections that this I, kind of work Oh, makes? I feel bolstered by the connections. And, um, and I discovered through writing this poetry or putting it out there that... Um, I seem to be an oversharer. I have no qualms about it. Mm. I just, just, just doesn't happen to talk about anything and expose any aspect of myself and to, to talk about any aspect of any other human because I think it's, it's really interesting. Stuff flies once we get through those sort of veneers of pleasantries, mm. you know. So yeah, I'm just really happy to share that. I don't, I don't know why. Well, maybe the openness in itself is a kind of, it's a way of connecting, but also takes the poison out. I think that, and I think also, the poems are not talking about how great I am. You know, they're (laughs) kind of not shining a great light on myself, and I think people relate to that too. I'm not pretending to be anything than, you know, other than what I am. Well, not a saint. But then then I suppose there's, you're also telling the reader, it's okay. Yeah, we're, we're all, we've all done yeah. things we sort of possibly preferred not to have done. That's fine. Yeah. Life is just a series of those things, I think, that we prefer not to have done. <laughs> That's right. And then you die, right? <laughs> First the cream turns, and then you die. <laughs> That's right. So, so, at phrase, yeah. phrases. Um, <laughs> so one of the other key themes in the book, um, uh, and I'll probably try and get you to read one more, but one of the other key themes, this notion of exile yeah but I feel like there's also a way in which you kind of cling to that identity almost as if exile itself were a sort of identity I mean I think of yeah, it's James Joyce you, you know yeah. exile is one of my <laughs> yeah I never thought of, of that before but it's true and I guess you know when I when the odd occasion I've been back to Scotland when I'm in Australia I romanticize Scotland so much and when you're in Scotland you know, you think, oh, I need to get back to Australia as soon as possible, you know. So you kind of live in a place of nowhere, and maybe that place is exile, actually. Yeah. And I do. I mean, and it becomes its own identity. Yeah. It's actually a place in another That's right. This, like is, this is quite um, a revelation to me to, have, to even have this idea <laughs> floated. It hadn't occurred to me, but I think I think you've hit the nail on the head there with something. Yeah. yeah. So there you go. I'm in exile. Oh, well, there you go. I'm a fellow exile. <laughs> happy, yeah, kind of happy to be here, but at the same time, you know, yeah. as as a not Australian. Yeah, there's that, and and I guess it all comes down to at the end of the day, whichever country you live in, it's about how happy are you with who you are, you know. And we we tend to put all those kind of um, the things we get annoyed about. We 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 accuse the con- the particular country we're in at the time. Of, or it's Carolina or it's New York yeah that's true yeah well wherever you you go there you are (laughs) yeah that's right so I guess the 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 idea is and the moral is just we need to get comfortable with who we are you know I guess maybe that's I don't I've never really thought about it but maybe that's what the poetry does well there is certainly there's that theme but then there is another kind of um, migration of course as well that you touch on in the book and it may be your only really overtly political poem but um, this notion of obviously of of refugees, yeah, and um, and the, the third poem I'd love to get you to read is uh, mm. "Me Council, Me Council Casa, a Two Council Casa." Yeah, 
um, which of course is uh, is the kind of migration that doesn't involve choice. Yeah, that's right. <clears throat> Sorry, let me find it. Do you know which page? Oh, here we are. Okay, so this is called Mia Council Casa as to Council Casa. Mm. I live out of Sydney these days. It is close to the beach, though we are not wealthy. Some days there are whales, other days dolphins, occasional jellies and never dead babies. I like visiting the art gallery in the city. It takes me one hour to drive there. I park at the expensive multi-storey. It is a $10 flat rate on a Sunday. After parking, I cut through Hyde Park, past the statue of Robert Burns, standing alone and too far away from Scotland. We are both foreigners here, of the acceptable kind. I like the location of the gift shop. It is right next to the entry, which is also the exit. I always go to the gift shop first. They have handbags made of unshaved cow and earrings like hot air balloons and a dimly lit section at the back with mysterious art books in thick polythene covers. The thickness of the polythene indicates their seriousness and the price and there is an arsehole in there wearing Jesus sandals though he bears no resemblance to Jesus, and the arsehole says to a random woman, who turns out to be an arsehole too, he took a holiday in Paris once, on the left bank, some 30 years back when it really was something. And if Hitler were alive today, this whole thing with the Syrian refugees would not be happening. And the female arsehole agrees. Then the Jesus-sandaled arsehole says what's going on over there is nothing but a European invasion. And the subject of the little boy's body on Bodrum Beach comes up, and I have been there on holidays some 30 years back when it really was something. The hotel was right next to the doctor's surgery. Bent, black-clad women came daily, clacked rose rosary beads on milk crates in full view of fat tourists bathing topless on hotel lounges ordering chips and cokes they did not need from Kadir, the Turkish waiter, who brought me proper chai in a glass and taught me how to say, tomorrow I am going to Istanbul. After the little boy's body got washed up on the sand, Australia offered synthetic duvets, fake chai lattes, and empty promises to 12,000 of the 5 million in camps who cry themselves to sleep at night. And I have calculated this on my iPhone, and it works out to be a teardrop in the ocean to the closest decimal point. Australia, I have offered more hope to more cockatoos, more safety to kookaburras, more gum leaves to koalas than the crumbs you are flicking from your all-you-can-eat buffet. It is time to feed the birds, Australia. Tuppence a fucking bag, sure. What does it cost to pipe in a haggis? Share some tatties and neeps. Raise a glass to their health. Mia council casa as to council casa. Australia, the world's eyes are rolling in your general direction. And right now, you look like some kind of Jesus-sandaled arsehole sitting on the veranda of your oceanfront property with your deep pockets and short arms, pretending you don't even know it's your turn to buy the next round at the bar. 
<laughs> I've got you to read some really intense poems. Okay. Um, that one really makes its point. Um, yeah. But, but it never takes the moral high ground, and I think that's that it really hits. Yeah. It's just saying, do what you need to do. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. And again, it's just another one of those poems as they all are. They just come out in whatever tone they are. And um, yeah. It's quite it's a distinctive tone to you, I think. <laughs> yeah, that's no, absolutely wonderful. And, and I think, um, I mean, I think throughout the book, one of the things that really hits home to is um, this exploration of, of love, really, of mm. love. But not syrupy love, not perfect love, yeah, just, yeah. just fractured love. Like yeah. the kind of love one feels for a bad father. You know, yeah, or the, yeah. you know with all its guilt and all of its, that's you know, right. And I used disappointment. to think, I think that um, at some level we are taught that one day love will be perfect mm. and life will be perfect. And I think the greatest revelation to me is this knowledge that it's not and mm. it never will be. And that's fine. Yes. It's your, your still lovely. Your heart can lovely. still crumble like a cup can. Your even heart if can crumble daily. It's yes. fine because it's happening to us all. All of our hearts are crumpling. Yes. Everything's fractured. But you have to find a way through. Yes. And there's still beauty there. Yeah. So you find it and you go on with the next day and it crumples some more and maybe one day it doesn't crumple so much. <laughs> you know. There's I kind think, of beauty in the crumpling I as think, well. I think there's beauty in accepting the crumpling. Mm. You know, accepting rather than believing in Santa Claus, shall we say, or believing in... In perfection. Perfect, perfect love mm. or, you know, a, a great night on the dashing white charge or whatever. Yeah. It's, 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 in fact, it's laughing at a therapist. Yeah, it's just that moment of, of yeah. you know linking up and going back. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, all calling out BS together. That's, <laughs> that, that's my favorite thing. That's right. That's right. So um, I I know you're working on two books. Um, your second memoir, and is that going to yeah. be a straight memoir or poetry? You know, I, I'm not sure. I mean, I'd already written maybe thirty percent of it before poetry took over. So there's lots of fragments of that. Uh, I'm not sure how it's going to go. But I started writing it when I was in the Highlands. So anyway, so there's that. And then um, it's, it's, it's about going back to Scotland um, after a long period of absence mm. and, and travelling around Scotland with my brother. So okay. it was called, is called, Andy's Snack Band Tour of Scotland. So my brother and I went on a bit of a tour and he's got this amazing knowledge about little snack bands in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> so you sort of climb a mountain, come down the other side, and there's a great glen and a valley and... It's a little caravan with its little chimney smoking and they're selling burgers and all sorts of things. But it's in the middle of the nowhere. And how does he know where that is? He knows they're all over Scotland and he knows where they are. So the tour became that for me. It would be punctuated with stops at these snack vans. So it's a snack van tour. But, you know, hopefully it's um, it was it was supposed to be um, a, a laying to rest of old stuff, old family stuff. But it ended up being quite different. So anyway, long story short, that's that's one of the things that I'm writing and, uh, and while I was there in the Highlands, I started writing. Um, something quite odd happened. I started um, writing one day, and I found myself writing letters to Neil Diamond. <laughs> so Neil Diamond, and, and, and the voice that was coming through my fingers was a voice of a kind of maybe an 18-year-old young woman who was, you know, her father wasn't present, whatever, whatever. And, and Neil was this kind of almost, she kind of, kind of latched on to Neil as a... As a father figure, in a way, it's a bit sad. I can see that. Yeah. So it was like, dear Neil, how are, you know, and it was, and it's great. So I've got a whole collection of my dear Neils, and then I have my second poetry collection, which um, I've just finished. I'm just, I'm just putting the final touches to the manuscript. Oh, brilliant! Excellent. And that'll go 
I'll be sending out to the publisher at the end of January. That's my self-imposed deadline. Fantastic. Are you sending that to Wakefield again? Yeah. yeah okay. Wakefield get first right of refusal of future work as part of the current contract. So, okay, that's nice. Yes, yeah, so I'll send it straight to them. Oh, brilliant. Yes. Oh, lovely. So where can the listener, obviously having listened to these three magnificent poems, they will want to get your book. How can they find you, find out more, keep on top of what's yeah. going on? So I've, everything seems to be on my website, my link to Facebook and everything else. So it's at www.allywhitelock.com. Uh, yeah, everything's there. I keep that pretty up to date. Wonderful. Well, that's it. That's all we have time for. We could probably go on for hours, but thank you so much, Ali. Thank you so much. It was a joy. joy to listen to you. And uh, we're we're off to couplets, so I'm going to look forward to hearing some more poems as well. (laughs) Thank you very much. Thanks. Bye. Thank you.